When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hello, hello, and welcome to Soccer Made in Portland on OregonLive.com and Stumptown Footy. My name is Chris Reifer, and joining me, as always, the Timbers and Thorns beat writer for the Oregonian and OregonLive.com, Jamie B. Goldberg. Jamie B., what's going on? Um, a lot, I guess. I just got back from San Jose uh, yesterday, I think. I can't even remember. How, how, how was your, your, your trip? You went down not only to cover the game, but also to see, you know, your family that lives in the area. I do. I do enjoy that excuse to see my family. Uh, it, it was great. We, we do what we always uh, do, which is essentially I stay up in Marin uh, County with where my parents live and we drive down to San Jose for the game and they watch as fans. Um, and I, I do the reporting. So I make a weekend out of it and uh, spend the rest of the time, um, up in the North Bay, uh, so it's really good. I, I just mostly hung out with family, uh, went to some restaurants, and went down for the game, which obviously, as we'll get into, uh, had quite an exciting finish. If the rest of it wasn't exciting, yeah. If you exciting. stayed awake through <laughs> through, through the rest long. of it, you know, th- here this is a fascinating question, right? Because you know, ordinarily, you'd have parents going to support whichever team their child, you know, roots for or is part of, yada, yada. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? But here you're a journalist, right? And and as everybody knows, journalists root for games to be over early so that they can get their stuff in on deadline. Is that, do your parents basically adopt <laughs> that, that like rooting approach that they're, they're like, okay, we want something to write about to happen early in the game. And then we want the last 20 minutes basically just to like, you know, kick the ball around midfield and nothing and nothing to happen. Is that basically how they were approaching their rooting interest uh, in, in in the game last weekend? <laughs> no, it, no, it's definitely not. They they did tell me ahead of the game that they hoped it, it would end by the seventy fifth minute, as they knew that. So I, they I do. The, but, they, this but, is how they root no, for no, games. No, 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 but that's not how they root for games. That's what they say out loud. But they they are Timbers fans. They've really decided to adopt the Timbers. I've mentioned to them that in my role as a journalist, I'm not exactly a fan. Um, but they haven't really paid attention to that. They, they've completely adopted the Timbers. They watch every game. My mom, uh, gets very nervous, has to walk away from the TV. They're, they're pretty invested in the Timbers at this point. So that's what they said to me out loud. Uh, but yeah, no, I I think they were pretty excited. My, my dad was saying, uh, I guess my mom was saying that my dad stood up. Um, and they were trying not to show too much Timber support because they, they don't like to necessarily go to a, a stadium um and, and support the opponent um just don't want to kind of out themselves as timbers fans there but 
my dad stood up and was cheering when, when Valeri scored, my mom said. So their whole trying to not stand out uh, didn't really work at that moment. <laughs> Backfired a little bit, but he could have like sort of just passed it off as like, hey, I've been sitting for a long time. At least it's something <laughs> to like cheer for because this game has otherwise been, you know, kind of a wet blanket. Which it totally was until Diego Valeri did his thing. Uh, Timbers won. San Jose Earthquake zero. That was the game. We've been talking about it for a bit. Uh, but that was the game uh, that we all watched on Saturday. I was over in Boise uh, and I found out that thanks to ESPN Plus's, shall we say, interesting uh, blackout rules that I wasn't, I couldn't watch the game even though it wasn't on like TV over there. Uh, I couldn't watch the game using my ESPN Plus account. And so thankfully the, the Fort Boise uh, Timbers Army folks they like saved me uh, and, and told me where to go, and I went and joined them and, and watched with them, uh, which was great. Uh, I, I am grateful to them for, for bringing me out of the wild, bringing me out of the darkness, uh, and, and getting me to a place where I could watch the game uh, and also in, in sharing a beer with them uh, while watching it. That was a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, uh, th- that was basically the highlight for most of the game, other than Diego Valeri doing things that Diego Valeri does. Uh, our predictions, I like neither great but also like pretty good. I think we both like we, we both had lots of like feeling of the game kinds of success here. I called a 1-1 draw with the Christian Paredes goal. You called a 0-0 draw with a Jeff Adanella goal. I think I gave away the points last week because you were mad at me because I gave myself too many points. Uh, what do you think? Do we deserve sort of like general feeling of the game points this year given that we both sort of predicted this to be, even, albeit imperfectly, a kind of drab uh, low scoring affair. Sure. But, but since I'm giving out the points, um, I'm going to give you five points, uh, for that sort of predicting. That seems like a lot. I'm going to give you three points for predicting sort of the, the affair, but I'm going to give myself four points because I think zero, zero was a little bit closer to predicting kind of the affair of the game than a one, one. Oh, really? Yes. You you don't think that maybe if Jeff Adanella doesn't come up with one of the, those saves... Well, then that... I'm just going to give myself some brownie points for, for at least having Adanella having good, a good game in my side bet. Well, so. Christian Paredes forced him <laughs> forced, a, forced a nice save out of out of Andrew Tarbell. He had a good hit um, on frame from I'm distance. I'm going to get the one more point than you. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> I, I, I record the rest of this podcast under protest. I will have it noted for the record. Under protest. Um, so the Christmas tree like kind of returned for the Timbers. Uh, it's been kind of an interesting evolution uh, of the Christmas tree. Maybe, yeah, yeah to um, extend a poorly crafted in the first instance metaphor. Like it started as a Douglas fir, then it went to a noble fir. Now we're like kind of maybe like a Charlie Brownish sort of thing. Uh, but in any event, the, the Christmas tree returned-ish, at least it did on the team sheet. Uh, do you think this is a long-term approach, a, a dying breed, or, or something that's sort of evolving into something different? I, I think it's evolving into something different. I, I think the role that we see uh, Andy Polo playing in this formation is absolutely changing. And you look at kind of the actions he had in wide areas, it, it's changing. It, this is not just the uh, three defensive midfielders sit in bunker uh, like we saw maybe the first time they rolled out this formation. I, I do think it's evolving. I do think it's a formation uh, we've continued to see it, and given that, I expect we will continue to see a version of this moving forward. But but I, I do think it's a hybrid uh, of what we saw before, and 
I think as particularly Andy Pohl's role is going to continue to change. The Timbers recognize the skill set that they they brought him in here for a reason, and the form the original formation they've kind of been using him as the the role they've had him play doesn't really fit that skill set of, of wanting him to get into wide areas and get him behind the back line and using his speed to kind of cause problems in the attack. He still needs to do that uh, the, and be more effective in creating goal scoring chances. But but I do think over time this is going to continue to evolve, and I I don't know if we'll see it switch. If we'll see more and more going down the road, more of maybe a, a four two three one um, in the future, or if we will continue to see more of this hybrid Christmas tree approach. Uh, but if we do continue seeing the the Christmas tree approach, uh, I I think we've seen it change every game, and I expect that we will continue to see those tweaks moving forward. Yeah, I definitely think we're gonna we're gonna see the these tweaks moving forward. I mean, this by you know in this game, this was almost. I mean, I, I understand why it's fair to call it, call it a Christmas tree still. I think it's especially fair. Yeah, I think it is justifiable when you sort of look at the roles that Diego Valeri and, and Sebastian Blanco played. They were sort of doing their own thing, and they were relatively distinct from Andy Polo. So it is fair to want to put those two guys in a distinct sort of midfield level nomenclature. Uh, oh, pork chop. Uh, pork chop joining uh, Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, get, get, getting him in with his guest appearance. I'm sure Jerry will make one later, so uh, it, it is it is all good. Um, but thank you, Porkchop, for 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 making uh, a drop in guest appearance. Uh, but in, in any event, you know, I mean, it's it, it's sort of uh, you know, I so I understand why I think you can still justifiably say it is that way because you know Blanco and Valeri were doing something very distinct from Polo in, in that game. And so that's fine. But maybe if I'm going to further refine my poorly conceived metaphor, it's like it, it, it's like you you had the Christmas tree and you had the ornaments and then you decided to take all the ornaments off of it on a Sunday. But then like it got too late to take it to the tree recycling place. So you kind of just leave it there for a week as a, as a tree. Is it a Christmas tree anymore? That's debatable. But you kind of just leave it there as a tree until the next weekend when you can take it to the to the Christmas tree recycling place. Not that I've ever done that. I have definitely done that before. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it may, maybe that. It, it, it is still technically a Christmas tree, but it has been stripped of many of the the, the things that made it sort of the Christmas tree in the first instance. I, I, I think you're spot on about the role of Andy Polo, uh, and I think that's why it, it's, you know, also fair to, to make an argument that this was more 4-2-3-1-ish and played more like a four-two-three-one, even in defense at times, not just in the attack, uh, than it did uh, than it did a true four-three-two-one. So uh, I'm totally with you on on the evolving uh, or like the phase of the Christmas tree that it is now, and 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 you know it wouldn't surprise me to see if we see sort of variants of this come out, especially on the road at, going forward. Uh, but I think it's going to be more change of pace than it is than it is going to be sort of the the, the timbers primary approach so uh christmas tree season may be mostly over uh although there's always time to pull out you know whatever the the favorite holiday movie is to see to, to see a christmas tree uh on occasion let's say gosh i'm really absolutely like slaughtering and by i don't mean in a good way these metaphors uh with, with regard to christmas trees i really need to move on from that so i will uh, this was a boring game <laughs> for the timbers it was really boring uh, do you think that's that's kind of a win for the Timbers in, in, in making it boring? The Timbers sort of got what they were going for? 
Yeah, I, I think they did. I, I think you listened to Giovanni Savaresi after the game. He, he said they went in with an approach where they wanted to um, kind of prevent San Jose from getting chances centrally, pushing them wide and limiting their opportunities. I, I think they did that for the most part. San Jose didn't get a ton of, of good looks. Obviously, there were a few, and Jeff Anella had to come up with – some big saves uh, to to ensure that the Timbers walked away with the win here. But yeah, I, I think that the Timbers came in with an approach. They came in with a game plan. It, it's you, you, it wasn't necessarily uh, as unique or, um, or tactically savvy in the way that the New York city FC game was, but, but I, I think Savaresi had a smart approach for this game and knew what he wanted out of his team to, put them in the best opportunity to at minimum be able to get a point on the road, which they looked poised to do for the majority of the game, but ultimately give them some chances. If they can find that goal, if they can find a way to pull that out, make a, get a few opportunities and uh, find a way to get the back in the net, walk away with all three points and it ultimately worked. So yeah, boring game, but I'm not faulting the Timbers for finding a way to, to get three points on the road in a place um they, they'd only won once in San Jose in MLS play, and they never won at Avaya Stadium. Yeah, that, that one win, if I'm remembering right, was in 2014. A uh, crazy game where yeah, you and I were sitting next to each other at Buckshaw Stadium uh, in, in the press box where we were mostly obscured by the those horrible, like, horribly designed press box windows. Was that the banner? Was that the game with the San Jose that, that that was the banner. Uh, the the Quakes scored first, and 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 we sort of thought for a moment that that was going to be a death knell for the Timbers, uh, because they were still very much kind of trying to get in, to get and stay in the playoff uh, scenario. But then they they came back and scored a couple to to ultimately win the game. Um, that was fun. That was that was a nice little little trip down memory lane. Uh, but yeah, they hadn't won since then, and, and and that's a good period of time. But I thought that was a it's a total win for the Timbers. And look, I. I still think this is very much a Timbers team that is in transition. I, I, I think the, this team and, and, and Savarese have shown over the course of the last few weeks that, that you know, I mean, they can win, they, they can win a chess match. They can devi- design sort of a, a, a system to go in against a particular po- opponent, execute it, and, and come away with, with the desired result. But I still think this is a team that is, you know, not to, to get too, you know, trite, uh, on, on you that is still kind of searching for its own identity. I mean, if you were to ask me how the, you know, what, what sort of the Timbers calling card is and, and how the Timbers sort of go about, uh, you know, what their philosophy is for going about and beating opponents, I'm not sure I'd be able to tell you. Uh, I think this is still a team that is, that is figuring that out. But in doing so, I mean, they are now doing a much better job of sort of putting together these game plans to go get these results in these particular games. And I think this is one where, you know, if you if they are getting themselves to that spot where it is a boring game, where they're really limiting the other team's chances, they're not letting uh, the uh, the opponent uh, on their home field get into attacking, uh, you know, promising attacking positions with regularity, and they are also giving themselves, uh, you know, opportunities to pull off a play uh, here and there, maybe get a goal, maybe get three points. That's the that's pretty solid for where the Timbers are sort of in this kind of long transitional period. Uh, obviously it worked out uh, and they got those three points uh, from that game uh, against the earthquakes. And that's exactly what you need to do in some of these games. I think if you play that game 10 times, you probably have a couple 
Quakes wins, a couple Timbers wins, and probably a good number of draws. Uh, but look, I mean, they 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 came away with, with the three points, and you got got to give them credit for that. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I I think the way the game played out, uh, I would expect Geo to be very very pleased with uh, for where his team is at, uh, sort of in its transition. Uh, Diego Valeri. He scored a golasso, an absolute golasso. Is he officially back, Jamie Goldberg? I yeah. I mean, he scored a golasso, and, and I believe he has at this point a goal or an assist or both uh, in, in the last five games. I, I think when you look at the Timbers' success in the last few weeks, I, I mean, Valeri getting on on the score sheet, providing goals and assists, is important to that. And I don't know if he's going to have a season like last year, I don't know if that's ever going to happen again. I, I wouldn't bet on it. Uh, but I mean, he needs to be influential for this team. And I think that's what he's doing right now. Yeah. And you know, I mean, whether he's going to be MVP again this year or not, I mean, I, it is unlikely uh, that he will be, but I mean, he's back to sort of providing that league elite, you know, top five players in the league kind of production. And, and so, I mean, if anything, I think this is a, a moment where we can sort of put to the sword something that that was a big cause for concern very early on through preseason and, and even into the first few weeks of the se- of the season, which was whether Valeri was sort of Valeri. Answer: Yeah, <laughs> dudes, dudes, the same guy that we've come to know uh, over over the course of the last what five seasons now uh, in, in Portland, and that's a very good thing for the Timbers. Question from Adam: Would Fernando Adi have earned the foul call that Samuel Armenteros won uh, to get the free kick that Diego Valeri ultimately buried in the back of the net? You know, it was one where he sort of skipped a challenge and uh, you know and, and skipped a player and, and got brought down from behind. I mean, it, it, I suppose it depends. <laughs> I mean, would Adi have been in that exact spot drawing that exact foul? I, I think it's you know probably not because they they're different stylistic players and, and you got to credit. Armateos. He is a little bit more slippery than Adi when it comes to things like that. That said, I mean, there are fouls that Adi would draw, or should draw at least, uh, that Armateros would not. I mean, he is just a much more physically imposing and, and has the ability to sort of physically dominate defenders in a way that Samuel Armateros just can't. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I think it was a, a decent little outing uh, for Armateros in the 10 minutes or so that he got. Uh, I think it was good, obviously. It was a good play for him to to sort of wiggle out of that pressure and to earn the foul in that dangerous spot. I, I noticed uh, Gio gave him credit for that after the game, and I, th- I think that was absolutely warranted. Um, but, you know, I mean, would Adi have earned the foul? Who knows? Uh, that particular call made that particular play? Eh, probably not. But, uh, but, you know, I mean, there are definitely other things that Adi brings to the table that Armenteros does not. Okay. You know what? Let's let's talk to our old friend Matt Pence, uh, and let's talk to him in particular uh, about the Timbers taking on the Sounders. That is this game's upcoming weekend for the Timbers. It is the 100th time in sort of league, you know, or modern times competition. The Timbers versus the Sounders, modern being used broadly, going back to 1975, I think is the is the cutoff here. Uh, but the hundredth time that these two teams have faced off. That game is Sunday at one o'clock. Uh, and let's preview this first from the Seattle end by talking to our good friend Matt Pence and bring him in now. It's our great pleasure now to welcome in our good friend uh, and the Seattle Sounders beat writer for The Athletic. Uh, that is Matt Pence. Uh, Matt, how are you doing? How are things up in Seattle right now? They are currently spitting rain from trying to stay dry while we film this Raining in Seattle. It's actually like kind of sprinkling in Portland a little bit today. A nice little respite. 
uh, as we get ready for, you know, a, a nice warm weekend uh, upcoming uh, with, the, with the Timbers and the Sounders ready to face off. So, you know, over the course of the last week or so, it seems, at least from our perspective here, that things have kind of reached a near crisis level uh, in, in Seattle as a result of, of well, the results uh, among other things, do you think that's fair? I mean, do you think people are overreacting to a slow start like the Sounders have had in the past, or is this something that's different? It feels different to me, honestly. Um, when you look at where they were at, and the 2016 team is the most obvious comparison because they were a team that started especially slow and looked like they were never going to get out of that hole until they did and got hot late went all the way to MLS Cup and won their first championship. But this just feels different to me. That 2016 team always felt like it had an extra gear that for whatever reason, whether it was injuries or guys just not playing to their potential, they just weren't able to hit consistently. Whereas this year's team right now, it just doesn't seem like they have the horses in a way that they always have in the past, even if they haven't been playing as well. So I think that, I mean, yeah, it's overblown in the sense that, like, in world affairs, canceling the Iran deal today, that's an actual crisis. But in sporting terms, it's been a pretty bad week and a half up here. <laughs> that's very, very, uh, that's very, very fair. What do you think has been the most surprising thing about it to you? I mean, is there one thing in particular that you sort of look at uh, and say, man, I really did not expect that to be a weakness coming into the season? Or do you think it's just sort of been a, an across-the-board disappointment? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess the surprising thing is that they made no effort to upgrade the attack at all. Um, I think that it was very justifiable for Seattle to hold off adding another designated player because, as Guard Lagerwey kind of explained, in a World Cup year, it can be thin pickings in terms of key difference makers that are probably trying to make it onto their teams. And it also just kind of makes for a tough market. So I get why they held off on the DP, but there were other, there were other, there were other kind of like facets that they could have improved, whether it was just bringing in guys via trade or signing them in the off season or what. So I think that, I think I've been most surprised that they didn't make any kind of move to kind of get the attack going. I thought it was, I was really surprised that they did not get meaningfully involved in the Justin Miram sweepstakes. I thought that was a deal that made a ton of sense from the Sounders perspective, uh, especially given some uncertainty around Victor Rodriguez, and they just didn't even seem interested in getting involved at all. Um, so good to that point. Uh, I entirely agree. Yeah. So that's been a surprise. And I really, especially with Morris getting hurt as early as it did. I mean, that's a huge, step back for the team and it's a bummer because he's such a good community guy and he'd like to see a young player like that continue to develop but I mean it happened in early March and it gave him a lot of runway to add some attacking reinforcements I mean it just seems like they kind of held off in a way that they were sort of hedging their bets that they could piece it together in the meantime and they have not been able to so speaking of the attack, uh, Clint Dempsey is obviously a player that's been critical for the Sounders over the last few years. Um, but the role he's been playing this year, obviously, it's changing now as he's getting older. And can you talk a little bit about his role with this club and what you expect for him to play this season? For sure. I mean, I think that in an ideal world at this point in Dempsey's career, you would just kind of have him as a spot starter and a super sub who can come in and make big differences. I mean, he's 35 years old, having lost almost half a year 
to a heart condition a couple of years ago. And I mean, it's just at this stage of his career, that would be a rational role. But like with everybody else with the Sounders right now, they're just having to lean on him so heavily because they just don't have a whole lot of options. Um, so Dempsey can be a lightning rod a lot of times in terms of criticism and everything else. But I think he's been bought in. I think he's been doing about as much as you would expect. But without some of those guys surrounding him to free him up, he's just kind of been a little bit limited. The Sounders have uh, also had injury issues early in the season. What does that look like now heading into this weekend against the Timbers? Uh, well, the Nicholas Lodero one is the most concerning from a Sounders perspective because they look, they look like they were going to struggle to score even without him. You take him out of the lineup and they might not score until July, which uh, is the way that they've looked lately. Um, and so he was kind of a mysterious scratch for the Columbus game last week. He wasn't on the injury report. Then the team said Schmetzer would address it, and it was just kind of the language was a little bit parsed. Um, but it's a foot injury officially listed on the injury report today for tomorrow's match in Toronto is a toe fracture, which is not really an ideal injury for a soccer player, I would not think. No, I mean, that um, really gets in the way of picking a ball. Yeah, I would say that he is doubtful to go both on Wednesday and probably on Sunday, but that could change as the week moves on here. So given all of the injuries, and, and, and I just want to go back and, and make sure I have in my head what the Sounders are going to be looking like on the back line as well, because Ramon Torres has been out and will be out again. Is, is that correct, that he is sort of out for the, you know, not long-term future, but but for the medium term? Yes, that is correct. And then Chad Marshall has sort of been in and out uh, with, with, I think, just sort of uh, various things. How do you expect the, the Sounders to uh, approach Marshall and really the rest of the, the team with this nightmarish midweek trip to Toronto before coming back to Portland? Yeah, they're in a tough spot because going into Toronto, I mean, I think that it would be a natural time to kind of rest some guys and save it up for the weekend. But the way that Toronto can sort of put it on teams, you're kind of opening yourself up for a 5 nothing tight beatdown if you go in there with too many guys rotating through. So I think they got to use some guys in. I would expect Schmetzer to hold out as many guys as possible. A guy like Marshall, for example, who might be a little bit questionable, I would expect them to hold him out until Sunday. Um, but overall, yeah, I think they're going to try to piece it together as best as they can. But even their first choice 11 isn't really close to first choice right now. So you expect, you know, maybe like, a mixture between the the first choice eleven and the Tony Alfaro All Stars is all that's all referred to them. Essentially, yes, that's a good way to put it. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I mean, that'll be an interesting one uh, to watch. But yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, you just sort of look at the roster and who's available, and there are frankly just not enough guys to to completely sort of turn over the lineup and and just take your lumps in Toronto and then come back to Portland trying to compete. So it'll be very interesting to see how. Uh, how Brian Schmetzer handles that. You know, I got to ask you about this because, well, you know, I mean, we down here in Portland, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who enjoy sort of navel gazing to our north. Uh, And there's been a lot of discussion uh, since Garth Lagerway's, I'll say now infamous comments in Los Angeles about Seattle's ambitions. Do you think it's reasonable for fans to worry about whether the Sounders of all teams are, are taking a sufficiently ambitious approach in you know, I, I say this with air quotes, uh, today's MLS. What, what, what do you think about that? Is that reasonable or is this just sort of 
the navel gazing that 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 naturally sort of shoots off of a, a disappointing start on the field. I think it it gets to a much deeper level than that. Uh, I think the Sounders are kind of caught in between. For the longest time, I mean, their whole branding has been about being one of the very leading teams in MLS, going to spend with everybody, not going to take a uh, backseat to any of the bigger markets in L.A. or New York, and we're always going to spend with the best teams. And that's, I think, that's what a lot of people latched onto up here. I mean, it's probably similar in Portland that you're still kind of on a little island out here, even up in the bigger city, but like there's still a little bit of that self-consciousness about where Seattle fits in nationally, I think the sound has really resonated with people because they were so addressed. But that said, in the way that the league is changing and you add in these more and more ambitious expansion clubs like Atlanta and like LAFC that just naturally have deeper pockets than the Sounders do, I think the Sounders are still going to spend right in that top-ish tier. And they've kind of been doing that for a while now, but there's a disconnect with the way the club has positioned itself and where it actually sort of stands up in today's MLS. And so I just think that there's going to be this inherent tension around that until sort of the expectation levels get down to reality a little bit. But it's going to be kind of a, a painful interim here, I think, in the meantime. Looking, um, well, I guess on a little bit of a lighter note, uh, this will be the 100th meeting between the Timbers and the Sounders this weekend uh, in the history of the two clubs. And just from your time covering the team as a sports journalist more generally, how do you think this rivalry compares to other rivalries within the United States and even outside the United States? I think within MLS, it, it still is sort of the gold standard. I know the league has tried to hype up some of the the New York rivalries and some other ones that have popped up that maybe will eventually challenge it. But with NMLS, I think that it's sort of not even really comparable with anything else. It's always kind of tough comparing MLS with the different ones around the world just because they have lengthy histories traditionally and just the leagues are so different. Um, but I think that within American sports culture, there is nothing really – it's just a very unique event. Like, there are certainly – more prestigious rivalries, but there is sort of nothing like a Sounders at Timbers game at Providence Park. And I think it makes this rivalry still really, really special. So in that time uh, that you've been covering the Sounders, that you've been in the press box, what, I mean, what is sort of your, your, your favorite memory? I'm obviously in a really reflective mood right now. Uh, so what is your favorite memory uh, in that time that you spent covering the Sounders? What is the thing that you look, look back on and just puts a smile on your face every time? Definitely the Open Cup game a couple of years ago. That's probably a pretty standard answer at that point, but this and that was one of the craziest events I've ever covered in any sport, just because everything just popped off in the way that it did in such a unique way, and it was so dramatic and just so surreal, and it was a late deadline, and you're like tapping away, have your story written, and then everything changes completely. Um, so definitely that one sticks out to me. Really, all of them. I mean, really, even compared to the various playoff games, these are still my favorite games to cover um, in any given season just because they do have that really special feel. So I really look forward to them, even ahead of the ones on Sunday when no one's really playing all that great. You don't really know what to expect. <laughs> so we're going to see our old friend Daniel Radford uh, at the game. He, is, he has <laughs> been uh, appointed the fourth official for this game. Uh, what's the feeling about that up in Seattle? Are, are folks excited to see such a 
iconic figure now in this rivalry again uh or, or... yeah i don't think excited is the word but yeah it's definitely a nice little touch though nice little narrative touch to the game yes a very nice little narrative touch and hey who i mean i'm not sure you could find three people uh in the united states of america who enjoy a good soccer narrative like the three of us um, <laughs> oh so... yeah that, that's fair <laughs> thank you so much matt we very much appreciate you thank coming you. on as always uh we look forward uh, to seeing you down here uh, in Portland on, uh, on on Sunday for the game. Uh, and also look forward to reading uh, everything that you have to produce uh, for The Athletic uh, up in Seattle covering the Sounders. So thanks again, uh, and, and we'll see you on Sunday. Sounds good. I'll see you guys then. I appreciate it. Once again, a big thanks to Matt for coming on, on the show. Congratulations to him, by the way, uh, on, on the relatively new gig uh, at The Athletic covering the Sounders for uh, an exciting uh, new outlet the, that is really jumping into MLS. And, of course, a big thanks to him for coming on the show. Uh, let's hit the injury report. We got it from the Sounders end from Matt. Let's hit the injury report from the Timbers end. We have three entries here. Starting with Bill Tuiloma, uh, not including Zarek Valentin, who appears to be fine, uh, albeit perhaps a little embarrassed. <laughs> uh, but let's start with Bill Tuiloma and where he is at as it relates to his injury, recovery, and availability for this weekend. Uh I, I will throw out about Zarek Valentin. I, I saw him at training today. He still has a um, little bandage over his eyebrow. Uh, said he was worried for a second that he was going to have to get stitches. Uh, turns out that's not going to happen. So uh, that's all good for him. But but he's going to have a little conversation with his teammate about how to properly jump on a pile a- after a goal. Uh, we went, he went over that a little bit. You don't jump into the player. You kind of just push their shoulders down and jump up. And, and so that's kind of what went wrong there. So Andres Flores, of course, the yes. offender uh, in, in this instance, getting a little overzealous <laughs> and, and apparently a little hor- a little too horizontal yep. uh, in, in pushing him into Diego Valeri. I will note, however, that we can conclude that Diego Valeri's head just a bit harder uh, than, than <laughs> Valentin's. Valeri came out on the other end of that just fine. I, I don't know what Zarek's problem is. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Uh, so you should ask Zarek what his problem is next time you see him. <laughs> I, I will do that. I will definitely do that. Um with Tui Loma, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of just group these together, even though you didn't say it, because they all are kind of in the same boat. Tui Loma, Vitas, and Guzman, they all played for T2 last week after returning to full training last week. They were all in full training today. Uh, and so Savarese said it basically comes down to right now evaluating what kind of minutes they, those players can give them on the weekend. Uh, so it, it, they haven't made any decisions on the availability and on top of the availability. I, I mean, even if these players are ready to go 90 minutes fitter and they feel like they're at that point, I mean, it is comes down to a question of whether they'd want to make any line of changes to begin with. But in, in terms of just the health aspect, they, it's really coming down to how fit uh, are Guzman, Vitas and Tuli Loma and, and whether they're ready to go back in there and contribute minutes. So Brian then wants to sort of ask the next question that your you know, your report there begged, uh, which is who of these four starts we're going to add in one one more person: uh, David Guzman, Vitotas Andruskevichis, uh, Bill Tuiloma, and Samuel Armenteros. Which of the four, if any, start the game on Sunday? I don't see the Timbers wanting to make a ton of changes after winning three games in a row right now, and after coming off two good performances with NYCFC. And, and, and in San Jose, I think the smart bet would be that they're going to keep pretty close, if not the exact same lineup. 
uh, going into this game. Obviously, we'll see how formations and adjustments like that maybe impact their decisions. We, we saw uh, Polo come in for Flores from New York City to San Jose, so there might be a tweak here or there. But I, I think it's very possible that none of those players um, end up on the field this weekend. I, I think if any of them do, David Guzman would be my bet. And, and the reason being is, is I do think the Timbers want to get him a few minutes before the, this he goes off to the World Cup and, and they don't have a ton of opportunities right now. That said, I'm not sure if he's 90 minutes fit, so I'm, I'm not sure if that's even going to be a possibility. I, I certainly, uh, I think Vitas maybe, but I, I think Zarek, despite his eye injury, uh, seems to overall have done well enough not to lose that spot. And I so you're you're not concerned then about his cranial fortitude? No, I, I think okay. I think he'll I think he'll manage. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think with Tui Loma, um, I, I just there's no way you take Ridgewell out right now. Not at, not after these back to back clean sheets and the way Ridgewell has played. I, he's just been better. Um, and, and with Armenteros, maybe that's a question. Uh, Audi hasn't maybe produced up to the level the Timbers want, but it just, for me, I, I think making a lot of changes after three straight wins is not necessarily what you usually see coaches wanting to do. The other thing about Adi is he's been better at home than, yeah. than, than on the road. So maybe that's a, another reason why you stick with him for this game. Uh, if I were to put percentages on each, I would put Guzman maybe at about 15 to 20%. Uh, for basically the reasons you stated, I actually agree with all of your reasons, so I, I will just adopt them herein uh, and, and and just give my percentages. Uh, Vitas, maybe 10 to 15 percent. Uh, you know, I, I do think he provides some structural advantages over Valentin at left back. But, you know, if he only played 45 minutes with uh, with T2, that the, you know, he's probably a guy that you would want to have 90 minutes fit and know that he's 90 minutes fit before uh, you would replace Valentin, who has done a perfectly respectable job. Uh, in his place, Tui Loma, I would put somewhere between zero and one percent. I don't know. Uh, no, l- let's say five percent, maybe five to ten percent. Uh, and almost all or all of that five percent, five to ten percent, is if Ridgewell comes up with his like calf tightening up at some point over the course of the week, which, as we know, just happens. Uh, and then Samuel Armenteros, I, I would say about ten percent as well. Uh, Fernando Adi has done well uh, against the Sounders. He has done well at home. Uh, and so I, I think leaving that in that spot, uh, I do want to see Armenteros get an opportunity to start sometime in, in the near future and get some real minutes. But I, I'm not sure this is uh, when I would necessarily make that happen. Jack wants to know, how big of a trap game is this weekend? Is it, is it like a mouse trap, a, a bear trap, some other kind of trap that, that maybe I'm not familiar with? I wouldn't really classify this as a trap game like I, I would have classified the, the San Jose game as a possible trap game. I, I think Timbers Sounders games are always going to be a little bit different. Yes, the Sounders have been atrocious, and, and yes, the, the Timbers have won three in a row and are at home and should win this game. Uh, but I think to some degree it's less of a trap. I, I think the Timbers will be up for this game. I, I'm not, I don't think there's any worry that they're going to underestimate the sounders given just the intensity around the game i think that's gonna push them to uh you know be up for the game have the right mentality and not look at this team as an easy win um so for me it's not really a trap game i i just think there's a a different sort of mentality that goes into rivalry games and i I think that kind of is 
makes it more of a guarantee you're going to see the Timbers come out with the right mentality. That that said, I think it could end up being a wild game. I think you can look at the form of, of Seattle and I, it could be a completely different game because these matches always end up being intense and, and they always end up being just hard fought affairs. And so even though Seattle struggled, I, I think they're also going to be up for this game and this could be, um, it's one the Timbers should win, but it, it could definitely be a close game and a hard fought game in Providence park. So I, I think it is not at all a trap game as well for many of the reasons that you provided. Uh, but look, I mean, if anything, I think if I were the Timbers, I would just be absolutely salivating at this game. I, this game sets up just so darn well for the Timbers uh, between the Sounders form right now, their midweek trip to Toronto, uh, the Sounders injuries uh, and absences, the Timbers relative health. Uh, you look at all of those things and, and it's almost uncomfortable in how well it sets up for the Timbers. But look, I mean, he, here's the other factor. If you're, you know, a, a true green Timber uh, and, and, and you, you know, get into this rivalry I, I mean, this has every opportunity to be just an absolutely backbreaking loss for the Sounders. If you can go out there uh, and lay the lumber to Seattle, uh, oh gosh, that was a terrible <laughs> un, <laughs> unintended pun. But, but I mean, if they go out and, and, and do to Seattle as the circumstances sort of, sort of set up for them to do, I, I give Seattle about a snowball's chance in Hades uh, of going to Toronto and getting, you know, three points. Uh, and not much better than a snowball's chance of Hades in, in Hades of even getting one point uh, out of that game in Toronto. Uh, and then coming back, back back to Portland, if the Timbers can can beat Seattle and beat them heavily, look, I mean, you'd be looking at a Seattle team that is about as down in the dumps as any team in MLS, and they'd have to average 1.8 points of points per game from here on out for the rest of the season just to get to sort of the 50 point barrier that is a sort of certain playoff berth and 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 even or you know even on top of that kind of a a likelihood of having a home game in in the in the knockout round. This, I mean, the, frankly, if the Sounders don't come away with any points from this week, they're really in a bad spot. They're really, really on red alert uh, with a team that looks pretty shorthanded for a decent amount of time uh, that desperately needs that summer transfer window to get here. But it's not coming uh, over the course of the next 10 games. So, I mean, heck, I, I don't think this is a trap game at all. I, I think the Timbers should be pretty dialed in and should sort of, you know, smell blood in the water, so to speak, uh, when it comes to the Sounders team that's going to be coming to town uh, on, on Sunday afternoon. All right, a few more Timbers questions. Robert wants to know, has Alvis Powell finally arrived? I I, I feel like we're going to have this question every week, and my answer... A.K.A., do you want to play Charlie Brown to Robert's Lucy? <laughs> yeah, no, not yet, at least. Maybe sometime, <laughs> but I, I'm just... It, 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 yeah, he, he. There's just been too many times where I've thought he's arrived and it hasn't turned out that way. So yes, he, he's playing better. He's playing well. I, I, I like what I've been seeing, but no, I, I can't say that yet. May, may, maybe in the future, but uh, it, it's been too up and down uh, since uh, since he got here. And, and for what it's worth, I thought he was only okay yeah. uh, at San Jose. I didn't think he was he was great. You know, I mean, it was, it was a perfectly acceptable performance, and it's the kind of thing that that you're fine seeing from him. Uh, but I did, you know, I didn't come away from that game saying, "Man, you know who killed it today? Alvis Powell, game of his life, or, or anything like that." But look, I mean, you know, the the answer is the same. In, in fact, to the point where I'll tell you this: if Alvis has two consistently good seasons, 
I will come back on this podcast as a guest with you, and I will say, and I will answer Robert's question in the affirmative that yes, Alvis Powell has finally arrived. Short of that happening, though, eh, I'm not super wild. Curtis wants to know. It, it, it seems Laris Mabiala's return to form. By the way, I promised a, a Jerry appearance on Soccer Man Portland. You may hear the squeaking uh, in, in back. He is. He's found a, the toy that I've taken to call his lovey uh, because it's the one he like always cuddles up with in the evening, uh, you know, and, and, and when he goes to his bed, uh, it's it's like a rabbit, uh, that squeaky thingy. But yeah, in any event, that was Jerry uh, with his lovey. Um, back to Curtis's question. It seems Laris Mabiala's return to form is more related to a turn, return to fitness than anything else. He seems to, to have been a step slow at the beginning of the season. And, and Curtis is wondering if we feel he is sort of just simply played himself back into shape. What do you think, Jamie? Yeah, I, I think that's probably part of it. I, I, I think he wasn't informed in the beginning, and fitness is obviously something that has to do with that. I, I think, um, and I don't know, but I think the fact that he just had a newborn child at the beginning of the season could have played a role in this as well, given how that impacts sleep and just – when, when life off the field is more important than life on the field, you, you, you never know how that's going to impact a player. And I, I don't want to assume that that necessarily had an impact, but it could have, I, I mean, that could have had an impact. I think fitness could have an impact. I, I don't think we fully know exactly what was going on. Um, but yeah, he's clearly rounded into form. And I, I do think with that, he's gained fitness. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's actually exactly my answer. Um, hey, look, you know, I'm a guy that that has a puppy, and I lose sleep uh, as a result of that. So, you know, I mean, it it, it is something. <laughs> life intervenes, uh, and 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 having a child is certainly orders of magnitude over and above what I've experienced having a puppy. So, uh, so I'm certainly sympathetic to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, he does just look fitter. He looks sharper. He looks uh, he looks lighter on his feet uh, than he did in, in those first couple weeks of the season or at any point in preseason. So I, I think that's a that's a pretty reasonable working thesis uh, when it comes to uh, explaining Mabiala's uh, improvement. Not me, Chris wants to know with six clean sheets in his last ten MLS games. Good stat, not me, Chris. Is Jeff Adanella getting enough credit for what he brings to the defense as a whole? Maybe. I, I mean, I, I think that there are aspects we don't see I, in, ter- in terms of, you know, ma- maybe how he organizes the back line, um, how he communicates on the field, things like that. I, I also think there has been moments, there have been moments that we've seen where there have been a little bit of uh, incidences with lack, lack of communication with Adnell in the back line. I, I don't think it's been perfect since he got here. Um, but I also think it's hard to tell, is it Adanella or is it other factors? When you look at, I, I, I'm thinking back to probably the clean sheets in his last 10 games. I, I mean, I think some of those came at the end of last year when Liam Ridgewell was fully healthy, when Mabial was playing good soccer. At pretty much the only point last year where the Timbers had the back line they wanted and were playing well defensively. So that contributes as well. Is it Liam Ridgewell in the lineup or, or is it Jeff Adanella and his organization of the back line? So I, I'm just not sure um, if he's getting enough credit or not. And I'm not sure if there's things that we aren't really seeing uh, from the press box. Right. And in fact, your, your sort of association with Liam Ridgewell returning even goes back to last season as well because Ridgewell sort of got healthy and back and forth toward the end of the year. Laris Mabiala got in the team. And so, when, you know, when Adanella has taken over, he's there have always also been other factors that could also explain or at very least contribute to 
the, the defensive improvement. That said, uh, I think what we've seen to sort of kind of semi-answer Chris's question, I think what we've seen from Adonella over the course of the last two games, and, and particularly at San Jose, has been better than anything we've seen from, from Jake Gleason over the course of the year. I, I still think it's likely that this is a position that the Timbers will look to hashtag upgrade uh, in the summer transfer window. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I think Adonella has, has acquitted himself pretty well. And, and you know, to the extent the Timbers are going to uh, hashtag upgrade the position in, in the summer transfer window, Jeff Adonella is probably making a good case for him to be uh, the guy that the Timbers keep uh, and that they look to move Jake Gleason uh, on if they're going to add another goalkeeper. Um, rains. Rain versus thorns. Uh, the rain, The rains. Uh, that's that's what I'm calling them now. Uh, thorns versus rain, rain versus thorns. Uh, that was whoo. That was a wild one. Uh, three two. The final score not in favor of the home team. Uh, the the rain coming away with the wind in what was one of the crazier games we've seen at Providence Park over the course of the last few years. Uh, for the thorns, uh, Emily Sonnet, uh, Lindsay Horan scored goals. Our predictions not super good. I called a two one win for the thorns uh, with the Sundergorsevich goal. You called a 1-0 win for the Thorns uh, with a Tobin Heath goal. I think you should get negative points because you are so far off on the feeling of the game. But, again, I'm playing under protest, so you just go ahead and do whatever you're going to do. Well, I'm just going to give us zero points all around. I, that's probably wise. No, I that's, that's just fair. don't think either of us got the feeling of the game right at all. I, I mean, yes, I, I, we haven't given negative points on the show, and I'm not going to give myself any. But... I, I probably got the feeling worse, <laughs> but we both that this game was not what we predicted. And um, but you agree that that as between the two of us, you were the most wrong. Yes, but but as zero <laughs> is the, the lowest number we give, we are both going to get zero. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's fair. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> crazy game. Uh, and here is the Chris Reifer eats crow segment uh, for the week because I, I like you know sort of went on and on last week about how. You know, yes, there have been these defensive lapses, but they don't seem to be happening all that much. The, the They're keeping games uh, sort of close and, and giving the attack uh, and giving the team opportunities to win games by, by, by revving up the attack a little bit. They did rev up the attack a little bit, and it did not matter because the, the, the those defensive lapses that were, you know, only happening occasionally happened quite a bit uh, against the rain. So how concerned... Should I now be about the defense, Jamie Goldberg? Yeah, I mean, to your point last week, um, it made a lot of sense to say that last week because I think I looked back, and if you look at the two previous games, the the Utah game and the Orlando game, those teams scored one goal and also had one shot on goal in in the game. So it really was one big opportunity, and the Thorns conceded in both of those situations, and that's been their issue for for much of the season. This game... Yeah, it, they had some moments, and it wasn't just one. They they had some moments that they need to do better in. They were not good enough on set pieces. Seattle scored twice on set pieces, and they took a major risk in the box defending. They conceded a penalty kick that I think was deserved, and Seattle converted that, and that ended up being an important goal uh, that, that helped Seattle win the game. So the Thorns have to be better uh, on defense. I, I mean, it, it's the moments. It's how they're putting themselves in this position. Uh, Mark Parson said this week that one of the things he is looking at closely is why are they putting themselves in these positions to potentially concede? Why did they give up both those set pieces? What what led to them giving up the penalty kick? He's he's not only just looking at the last play, but he's really trying to think about the whole 
moment and, and what led up, what is leading up to these concessions. But I, I, I am concerned about the defense. I, this team has been the best defensive team in the NWSL the last two years. They're, it's going to be tough for them to be the best defensive team in terms of goals conceded this year with the start they already have. Uh, they conceded way more goals than they want, and it, it doesn't seem to be getting better. We're not seeing that shutdown performance they need to kind of get that confidence on defense and move past this. I, I think the one positive sign is that we are likely going to see Emily Menges in, in um, coming back soon. Mark Parsons hopes she's going to get minutes in Orlando on Saturday. And that can make a big difference, but it can't just come down to one player. So I'm not sure what the exact fix is, and that probably makes it more concerning um, because they haven't been able to figure out what that fix is yet, and they are still having these issues. And against Seattle, it wasn't just one. It was three concessions, and um, that's a lot of goals for this Thorns team to concede at home. Yes, uh, he who believes on Wednesday what he believed on Monday, no matter what happens on Tuesday, is a fool. Uh, and that's basically where I'm, at, where I'm at now. Yes, I'm a lot more concerned. Uh, you know, I mean, if it, if they are not going to be able to consistently limit these mistakes, you would like to have zero. But if they're not going to be able to consistently limit them to uh, a, a small number uh, per game, such that they're not bleeding goals, I, I mean, it's a, it's a huge problem. Uh, so I am a bit concerned. I share exactly the point you made about Emily Megas and, and hoping to get her back soon. I, I think that could be a potentially game-changing moment. I also think getting getting sort of the, the, the central midfield sorted out, getting Andre Senia into the fold could also be uh, another uh, another sort of game-changing factor when it comes to the Thorns' back line. So, you know, that's not to say that there aren't reasons for hope, but yeah, I'm a lot more concerned than I was uh, a week ago because, well, the evidence suggests I should be. Uh, speaking of uh, Andre Senia and Tobin Heath, they did not start against the rain, which was maybe a little bit of a surprise for us. They both came on at halftime. Uh, are you surprised by their omission from the starting 11? And, and when do you think they get back into the starting 11 full time? I was a little surprised, but I, I think more so with Andre Senia uh, than Heath. I, I think the Thorns, are, it's not surprising that the Thorns are being careful with Heath given the last year and the injuries that she's had and, and how difficult it's been to get her back on the field. Andresinha had an injury earlier this year, but was coming back from Brazil healthy. And so I, I am surprised that they're not integrating her uh, into the lineup, um, that, that they haven't been able to integrate her in the starting lineup yet. I expect, and I would, I would be shocked if we don't see either of them get a start this week. At that point, it would be confusing to me as to why they would not at this point be ready to integrate back in the starting lineup with the midweek game in the short turnaround. If I were to guess, if I, if I were to make a better prediction, I I'm going to say that they start uh, against Orlando on Saturday. I with players are integrating back in trying to get up to full fitness. I don't think it necessarily makes sense to start the midweek and then try to start them again on the weekend. But I, I think given their progression, it would make a lot of sense by the end of the week to see them in the starting lineup and give the Thorns a chance to really start looking, uh, rolling out the lineup that they want um, to build on uh, as they try to move forward this season. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's the, that's about right. I was, I was like you, more surprised about Andre Senior than I was uh, about Tobin, but I, I think he nailed it. Uh, frankly, when it comes to sort of what the the, the expectation should be, and I and I agree. I mean, if you're not seeing 
them both. And, and we actually had a question from Thomas, so I'm going to give him the shout out here. Thomas asked, how many games do Heath and Andre Senior start this week? I would guess that they would both start one. Uh, and if you're not seeing that, I, I think that sort of leads to another round of questions uh, about what the situation is, is, is with them and, and whether there is sort of more to that story. As noted, there are those two games. The first is the Thorns at the Dash. And that is Wednesday tomorrow. We're recording on Tuesday evening uh, at 5 o'clock. You may be listening to this on, on Wednesday, in which case, if you hadn't figured it out already, the game's today. Uh, it is nonetheless a 5 o'clock game down at Houston. Uh, then on Saturday at 12.30, tough Wednesday to Saturday turnaround, uh, the Thorns will play the Orlando Pride at Providence Park. Uh, let's talk about that one first before we sort of talk about them in general. And I think the burning question on everybody's mind uh, with respect to that that Thorns Pride game is whether Cassius Dwyer will be able to run around on the field afterward. Jamie Goldberg, what do you think? <laughs> no, I don't think he will. I think the Thorns are pretty clear that they only allow the players of their own team on the field. And I don't know if that's just a liability situation, but that's what they were pretty clear about with their statement, with Paul, Merritt Paulson's statements, uh, is their rule. Um I know that Sidney LaRue <laughs> questioned whether that was the rule in the past. I, I don't remember seeing any opposing players on the field in the past. I, so I don't know if that's accurate or not. Um, but that, that appears to be the rule. So I, I think that if Cassius Dwyer is at the game, he's going to have to watch from the stands. And I mean, the security concerns there about having opposing families on the field after the game, immediately after the game, I think are fairly obvious, <laughs> right? I mean, do we really need to explain this? Uh, they, they, they strike me as being fairly obvious. Maybe I'm, a, I'm being obtuse about this. I don't know. Um, but that seems to me, to me to be a fairly common sense standard. I agree with you. I don't think I've ever seen uh, an opposing player's family, children, etc., on the field immediately after a game. I mean, you sometimes see it when, you know, like if I go down to the post-game press conference and come back up to the to the press box, sometimes like you will see some family on the field and stuff like that. I remember Jesse Marsh's uh, kids playing with Kayla Porter's kids at one point last year. Um, but, I mean, come on. That's a totally different scenario than right after the game, which was the subject of the ridiculous hubbub uh, last time. Uh, Cassius Dwyer, adorable. Uh, uh, Sydney LaRue Dwyer and uh, and Don Dwyer seem like outstanding parents. Uh, and 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 you know, I mean, full credit to the Dwyer family for all all of the the things that are great. Dom probably dive a little bit less. Um, what do the Thorns? Do, do, what do you think they need to do this week to get back to where they need to be in the in the table? I mean, the, there's sort of the other way to go about this point, which is how concerned are you about the Thorns being at? Eight points through six games, basically tied for fourth uh, right now in the in, in the table. What do you think they need to do in these upcoming two games to get where they need to be? I think we want to see at least a win and a draw, but I really want to see two wins. I, I think two wins would put them in, in a good spot, and I think it should be doable. Houston has one win this season. They are coming off that win, but they, they're not a good team. They're not a playoff caliber team. I do not expect us to see the dash finishing in the top four this year and this is a winnable game on the road for the thorns and coming home the thorns should win at home they've been tremendous at home in past seasons it's hasn't been as easy this year but they've already beat orlando this year obviously different players in but for the thorns as well um they've already beat orlando this year they are going to be on their home field that should be a win as well so i think this is a great opportunity for the thorns to pick up six points 
I, I think that would put them in a much better spot on the table. But but given the opponents, I, I think a win and a, a draw um, is, I, I think, what I think anything else w- would feel a little disappointing. Yeah, that's sort of my minimum standard as well. Get four points out of, out of these two, and, and I think you're feeling okay. Six points, and you're feeling great. And and for me, it, you know, I you think back even just last year, uh, I would have to go back to look at exactly the points. I think the points were a little bit better than they are now. But the, as far as I would, in fact, it wouldn't surprise me if the Thorns were exactly fourth. Uh, at this point last year because they did spend uh, some time in the spring in that spot before they got healthy, before they got all their internationals back and yada, 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 and then went on a big run in in the second half of the season, ultimately finished second and, oh yeah, won the championship. Um, So, you know, I mean, I'm I'm not reaching or looking at the panic button uh, right now. Uh, I do think that this is, uh, like you said, a really good opportunity this week to sort of rack up some points and, and and to get themselves rolling now that they are getting healthier now that they are getting more of the team integrated uh, to kind of get rolling in, into that form that we expected them to be uh, and that they would need to be in in order to get a home playoff game uh, and, and have a good shot to get to uh, the 2018 NWSL championship, which will be, by the way, at Providence Park. That was the other bit of news from this week uh, that we got just before the game uh, last weekend. Yeah, I, I, I sort of slipped it in there on the slide. Did you like that? <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, one more Thorns uh, question. And, and it's a, kind of an amalgamation that I put together uh, from a, a question from Mike and then uh, a, a little bit of a conversation that, that I thought was interesting with Jess. And that is, how do you think NWSL as a league can be the best league in the world or can lay claim to being the best league in the world when players leave the league due to low wages, low wages, and roster rule limitations. Is this a major problem for the for the league, notwithstanding having you know the the Thorns, the largest club, drawing club in the world, uh, and a handful of other clubs who are certainly among uh, the best in the world? I I think I I think when you look at the other leagues uh, within outside of the NWSL, the issue is that those leagues overall aren't competitive. You have one or two or three really good teams. Uh, there, there's a reason why you look at the teams that some of the players that are currently in the NWSL played in in France. There, there's two, uh, and they've either played for PSG or Lyon. It's similar with um, the players that have gone to England. There's only a couple teams in these leagues that are actually competitive. So when you look at the league as a whole, it's a few teams running over all the other other teams and having one or two competitive games against each other. Overall, when you look at the talent of those one or two teams then you can start talking about if you want to rank the teams in the world where each NWSL club fits versus those teams. But when you look at the league as a whole, the NWSL, I think, is the most competitive league in the world. And I I think that's where they kind of try to lay claim to being the best league in the world. I think when it comes to the the roster limitations and low wages, yeah, I think that is a major problem for the league. And it's why they've lost players to Europe. I, I think those players... You know, motivation is to try to try to play in a different league, try to build their game in a league that maybe focuses on different skills. But but a major motivation is the fact that they're going to earn more money and they have every right to go earn more money abroad when they can't earn it here. So, yeah, it, it is a factor if they want the very best players in the world. They can't do that with the roster limitations and um the the salaries and if they want to keep players in the league that that are good professionals that that could be important players long term 
that ultimately retire because they they can't afford to make this uh to make this lifestyle work with, with the salaries yeah that, that's a problem for the league and its growth and, and trying to be the most competitive league in the world so yeah I, I think there are major issues i think the nwsl is trying to grow at a pace that makes sense they're trying to prevent uh issues that we've seen in, in past leagues where where they have to fold and they want to make this league work and i understand why the salaries are where they are and the roster limitations are where they are but these are things that need to improve over time if they want to lay claim to being the best league in the world but i do think right now when you look at women's soccer around the globe they are the most competitive league out there yeah i so i mean just sort of starting off i basically just accept entirely the premise that these are major challenges for nwsl laying claim to that uh and they they sort of just are what they are and and you know i mean the reason it's even a conversation, frankly, uh, is because of these things, because they do lose players uh, to, to go uh, a certain level of player to go seek better wages because they do lose players as, as a result of roster rule limitations. It's not, though, like there was just a sort of one way flight of players from NWSL. I mean, NWSL pretty consistently has major internationals also coming in at the same time uh, that there are some leaving. I, I mean, Caitlin Ford is a major international. Uh, Ana Maria Cernogorsevich is a major international. Uh, even just the, the thorns themselves are bringing some of these players uh, into the league. And, and certainly other teams are as well. And it's not just the thorns. Uh, and, and so, you know, I mean, I don't think it, it kills the league. I, I don't think it, it completely hamstrings it. But I think that's an entirely completely fair uh, point to raise. And they are major problems for uh, the league sort of moving forward. That said, I mean, look, the 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 history of domestic women's soccer is sort of fraught with the warnings as to why these things exist, right? Uh, you know, I mean, being overextended financially, being overexpanded, uh, and, and those kinds of things have been huge issues uh, with, with domestic women's soccer. And NWSL has gone to great lengths. Uh, both USSF and NWSL have gone to great lengths to, to try to make sure those things don't happen. And frankly, as NWSL is, is in fact, losing uh, losing franchises here, here and there, as there as there are still weak franchises, I think you see sort of the obvious need for these kinds of things at this point in time. If you're looking ten years down the road, I, I think that becomes a different discussion because you would certainly hope there are more deeper pocketed franchises, there are more stable franchises, and then you do need to have that discussion. But the the immediate need for these kinds of things, uh, I, I think, is is clear, even if it is uncomfortable. So, you know, I, I, I do think it is an issue. I, I think that this is an important uh, discussion. It's an important discussion to keep having uh, because as the need wanes, these the, the limitations should also wane. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it is, it is also largely grounded in reality at this point. Okay, let's hit some predictions. We've got three games to predict this week. Is this our first three-game prediction week of the season? I think it is. Uh, so, yeah, we have three games, uh, starting with the Thorns at the Dash, Wednesday evening, 5 o'clock. Uh, you can find it on the Go90 app. Jamie Goldberg, what's going to happen? I'm going to have to stop predicting Thorns wins if they uh, they let me down in, in the predictions category this week. Um, but I, I don't have a lot of faith in the, in the Dash uh, at, at this point. And so I am going to predict the Thorns find a way uh, to get the win there. It's going to be a 2-1 win. And... Uh, Anna Maria Cernogorsevic is going to get her first goal of the season. 
Uh, so I also don't have a lot of faith in the dash and perhaps smarting from last week. I don't have a lot of faith in the Thorns defense. I think they're going to get the win, uh, but I think it's going to be a 3-2 win. And I think Tobin Heath is going to score the winner coming off the bench. Thorns versus Pride, Jamie. What is your call for the, the sort of return game? Not return game in that they're playing the same opponent, but they're the second game of the week. Uh, twelve thirty Saturday at Providence Park. What's your What's your prediction? I, I think that the Thorns, as we said, we might see Heath start. We might see Andresinia start. We might see Mengus in there. I think they're going to get a, a, some players back in there, and that's going to give them a real boost. I think they're going to win two to nothing, and I think Heath is going to start, it and she's going to get the assist on both those goals, two assists. Again, gun try with the defense, but I, I think the Thorns are going to be all over this one, as they really were all over the Pride last time they came to town. Uh, 3-1 is my call for the final score here. I think Midge Purse is going to come up with an assist in that game. Uh, Timbers versus Sounders. Uh, the Cascadia uh, rivalry, not part of the Cascadia Cup uh, this first game. Remember, because the schedule was imbalanced as between the Timbers, the Sounders, and the Whitecaps this year, uh, this is the game that will not count for the Cascadia Cup standings. Nonetheless, there is... Always a lot at stake. Jamie Goldberg, what's your call? A lot of people have been at, or I, I asked people what their favorite Timbers Sounders memory was this week. And a lot of people have been saying the Chara uh, game where he had a brace. And that was a the disappointing game, I think, for the Timbers because Dempsey had a hat trick and it ended up in a draw. So I, I'm going to try to give, um, maybe not a brace. I'm a little gun shy on that, but give some fans out there something about char to celebrate uh with the timber sounders rivalry a different game so gonna predict three two timbers win and diego char is gonna score a goal a three two timbers win and diego char scoring a goal i'm gonna go bigger uh, I think the the Sounders are awfully thin on the back line right now. They're going to be tired. Uh, they're going to have to play a number of key contributors, both in this midweek game at Toronto and uh, in Portland on, on Sunday. I think this is just a brutal turnaround for a team that, frankly, just hasn't been good. Uh, and so I think I think the, the Timbers are, are going to get the job done, and they're going to get the job done in convincing fashion, uh, winning the game 4-1 to uh, on the strength of a Fernando Adi brace, uh, as he has done against the Sounders in the past, if I recall, at Providence Park. Okay, we're done. Uh, we are Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week, as always, uh, on OregonLive.com and Stumptown Footy. Uh, you can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. That person sitting just on the other side of the internet from me is Jamie Goldberg. I am Chris Reifer. Thank you once again what about to the fantasy update. Oh, I have to do the fantasy update, don't I? I do have to do the fantasy update. Oh well, man. I don't even play. <laughs> you don't play, which makes it easy to to know where you are in the league. You are in last place. Uh, but the top three uh, right now in the soccer made in Portland fantasy league, uh, third place is racing racing club club day thing that's cut off. That is Bone Boneburger. Uh, second place, it is unchanged from last week. FC Pierdlon, uh in, in the second spot, that is Kaplan. And then in the top spot with 980 points is Beer City FC. I fell to 35th. Full disclosure, I forgot to reset my lineup last week, but I still did a lot better than Jamie Goldberg, who is in last place. Anyway, you know where to find us because I already said that. Big thanks uh, to our guest today, Matt Pence uh, from The Athletic covering the Seattle Sounders. Uh, thank you to him for coming on the show, uh, as well as, of course, Thank you uh, to Porkchop for his uh, for his drop in appearance, uh, as well as Jerry on our end uh, for for his drop in. Always enjoy it when the puppers come along for Soccer Man in Portland. And yeah, 
Enjoy the three games we have to watch over the course uh, of the week between the Thorns and the Timbers. We'll be back next week to talk about all of that and, and more. I will be back next week uh, to talk uh, about all of that and, and, and more. Even though I'm retiring from writing, I will be sticking it out uh, on the podcast for at least the next few weeks. Uh, a couple weeks in any event. Uh, so I'll be back next week and we'll talk about all of that and, uh, and more. Until then, as always, take care.